Welcome to episode 217 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Friday was the final day of the International Vienna Energy and Climate Forum. REN21, Global Coalition of the Willing that wants to accelerate the development of renewable energy, was there arguing for a fast phase out of fossil fuels production. Now, this is an example of what's sometimes called supply side activism. And I'll be talking to Rana Adib, who is the executive director of REN21, about what her group hopes to achieve and whether a managed phase out is the best climate and energy transition strategy. So welcome to the interview, Rana. Yeah, thanks a lot. Very happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, you're joining us from Paris, so I'm a little jealous of that, I have to say. Uh, lucky you. Uh, what's Paris like in November? Well, to be honest, uh, pretty rainy today. You could almost uh, say it's a normal day, but like a couple of days ago, we had like still 20 degrees and uh, yeah, very sunny. So ups and downs, but a part of this Paris is great. <laughs> I bet it is. Well, look, tell us about the International Vienna Energy and Climate Forum. Um, what was that all about? So I guess what was really interesting about the International Vienna Energy and Climate Forum was um, the fact that it was really looking at bringing together players from energy, from climate and from development and uh, fully acknowledging that today developing renewable energy, developing energy efficiency is not only a good thing to do for climate reasons, but really something very important for development and economic development and opportunities for industrial development actually today. So at the heart of the economic and industrial discussions. Yeah, this is this is an, a, a, a topic that fascinates me. I just wrote a column on the weekend about how the thing that will drive the energy transition, the reason why we will have a fast transition, not a slow transition, as OPEC and, and others argue, is the fact that China has scaled up the manufacture of so much of the, the clean energy technology that it's it's forced prices down. It's there's a, a ready supply of things like solar panels and wind turbines and batteries and all of that. And then it's almost like it, there's a draft. You know, it kind of the the United States now uh, realizes it has to catch up to China. So now you have the Inflation Reduction Act, and then you then Europe goes, hey, hang on a second. Uh, you know, we were a leader here, and now we're getting now we're getting left behind. So then they modify their green industrial plan. And now we kind of have this, you know, clean energy uh, arms race. You know, who can it, who can build the the industry uh, faster and be competitive? And 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 then they're subsidizing on the that's on the supply side. Then you've got on the demand side. All three of those regions, those players, are subsidizing the adoption of those technologies. And 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 so it just it's like a virtuous virtuous circle, and it can't be stopped. And that's so my column argued that that's that's why. Uh, we're going to have a fast transition and in the Canadian context, Canadians just don't get it. They don't get the importance of China. <laughs> but your this forum that you were at raises the question that what can other countries that aren't China in, in the EU or United States or North America, what can they do? Or what opportunities are there for them? If you're talking about like Vietnam and India, Indonesia, Malaysia, maybe African countries, what, what opportunities do they have? I think this is basically a part which, uh, maybe to complement uh, what you said in the beginning, I would agree, yes, this is exactly why we see an acceleration today that 
um, different uh, leading regions uh, really see that they need to develop economic industrial activities and strong economic sectors around renewable energy. If we step back, however, I think it's very clear that First of all, uh, during COVID, we have really seen an increasing awareness on how important the decarbonization is. And there have been significant supply chain interruptions that have led to um, already a lot of pressure in the energy sector and on the energy prices. This was one part. This has been accelerated. Um, I think this uh, triple crisis, uh, the climate, biodiversity, and uh, the energy crisis, have been uh, clearly accelerated or accentuated by the Ukraine war, um, which has led to global inflation. And I think this um, already shows that uh, if today the global community is not looking at fossil fuel only, and renewable energy and energy efficiency have moved in the center of um, global attention and policy attention, economic attention, um, and also attention from energy consumers, it is really because we need to acknowledge that renewable energy do exist everywhere. So um, 65 countries, for instance, globally have uh, more than 20% of renewable energy in their total final energy consumption, which already shows that um, all these countries, any country, any city, any corporation, any citizens can at least contribute to cover some of their energy needs um, themselves. So, And this right. is already a part that really changes, I guess, like the energy map today. And uh, building on this, basically, it also means that um, many developing and emerging economies uh, see this as an opportunity. They see it as an opportunity to become energy producers, uh, to become energy exporters. And what we also see is that there is um, concentration of critical minerals in some leading developing and emerging economies. Yeah, so it that's- changes the geopolitical map. <laughs> Exactly right. And, uh, you know, if I was a, uh, a, a, you know, if I take a country in maybe Latin America, maybe um, India, um, you know, country in, in, in Africa, uh, this is an industrial revolution that the window to, to, to act doesn't stay open forever. And I, I tell this story often on this podcast, but a couple of years ago, I was interviewing, uh, and I can't forget his, I can't remember his name, uh, but he was the head of Bloomberg NEF's uh, mining and metals division uh, in, in, an analyst. And, and we were talking about how long Canada had to act on things like refining battery metals from their critical minerals. And I said, well, you know, it must have a decade, right? And uh, very latest, surely they have to 2030 to really get cranked up and, and and to do this. He said, no, he said, you have two to five years because there's so much interest in this because from all of the, you know, the emerging economies who are just anxious, eager to seize these opportunities, attract investment and, and build out their local clean energy industries to, to a, adopt these basically do a little mini version of what the Chinese and the and the Americans are doing he said you know this is moving at the spe a speed we we can hardly keep up and it so did you see that reflected in the delegates who were at your forum 
Yes, I think this was uh, clearly reflected um, a lot of interest basically from developing emerging economies and also very clear messages that uh, because obviously um, a challenge is like renewable energy resources do exist everywhere, but then it comes down to um, access to technologies and it also comes down to access to finance. So there is basically when we're looking at the energy transition. Uh, with regard to this, um, there are natural parameters um, like space that will have an influence whether a country becomes rather an importer or an exporter. But then there is really this part of um, access to technology and finance. And I think what is really important, you spoke about the concentration of the industry uh, on China. The reality also is when we're looking um, into global investment, um, these occur to 55% of the investment took place in China in 2022 and uh, followed by Europe with approximately 12%, which already shows that there is a major gap. And one of the big, big challenges that was also very much highlighted by the emerging developing economies um, at the Vienna Energy Forum uh, was the fact that only 4% actually of the global investment are taking place in those countries, even though 80% of the global population is living there. And I think this clearly shows um, why the discussions on a loss and damage fund, uh, on guarantee funds and access for uh, to finance investment is fundamental because the um, um, climate change is a global issue. Um, in uh, developing countries, there are still 600 million people who do not have access to electricity, 2.2 million people who do not have access to clean cooking. So there is really... Um, a global responsibility also to ensure that nobody is left behind, whether we are speaking at the global scale or at a regional or a national scale. So um, these were things that were very much highlighted um, in the discussions um, in Vienna. Um, in COP, uh, during COP26 uh, and COP27, um, financing for the energy transition play, was, you know, played a big role in the conversation, I think particularly last year. And and uh, Canadian Mark Carney uh, sort of led the the conversation around around that. And one of the points that he made was that there are, you know, I, I can't remember whether it was a trillion or trillions of dollars of capital sitting on the sidelines waiting for the opportunity to invest, uh, you know, in countries around the world. Uh, in clean energy industry and in the adoption of clean energy technologies like wind and solar and what have you. And wh what do your delegates think about that? Because there's one thing for Carney to go, you know, get up at a cop and, and say, oh, yes, we, we have all these plans. We have all these financiers, you know, the, the capital's just waiting there. We're ready to go. And then you get the fine print. Right. Then you get the reality on the ground. So what is the reality on the ground, according to the delegates who attended your your event. I think the reality on the ground is uh, clearly, and we hear it in all discussions, is there is a profound, we have a typical chicken and egg problem here. So you will always hear like from the finance sector, uh, no, the finance is there, we need bank over projects. Uh, you'll speak to project developers and they say like, we have great projects, uh, they are well assessed, but we have difficulties in finding the finance. So there's really, I, I think, um, some aspects that are matchmaking questions, but there are also some structural questions, especially when we're looking into access uh, to finance from developing emerging economies. We have basically uh, global global rules, um, I guess, that are reflected in the financial sector and in the rule set um, on the country rating, so country risk rating, the governance, et cetera, that are basically reflected in higher financial costs. So that's one aspect. 
The other one is um, the currency risk um, that is very important uh, when we're looking into uh, developing emerging economies. And that is today very often still to be borne by um, the project developers. Um, and this is very much linked to the fact also that um, in many of um, the countries, access to, um, to finance in the, the country's currency is not existing. And um, what does this mean? I think uh, one part is very clearly um, that um, there is uh, a whole discussions and processes ongoing on the um, restructuring and uh, innovation, I guess, like of the um, international development uh, banks uh, that are really important. Um, there is a big question about public and private finance. So how do we use public finance to uh, leverage basically uh, private finance? So in the lead up to G20, a study was done on the G20 countries. In principle, for $1 invested, um, we should be able to, $1 invested of public finance, a $10 of private finance should be levered. The reality on G20 is 0.47 is being levered, which clearly shows that uh, we also need to investigate basically guarantee funds um, that really allow to bridge this together. And then we still, um, and I think this is again a structural problem, we still operate uh, in an economic system that does not value basically uh, the investment in renewable energy um, at the right scale. So the external costs, whether it is environmental or social costs of fossil fuel are not being reflected in the economic models. Fossil fuel subsidies are still a massive reality all over the world. Uh, governments are sending uh, mixed messages um, on renewable energy and energy uh, efficiency. And the benefits of moving to renewable energy, whether it is in terms of um, least costs, a more resilient energy infrastructure, uh, local benefits, so local content, um, is also not reflected as benefit in the economic model. And so I, I think this is really where we have structural barriers that need to be addressed. So Rana, I think we've, you know, in the course of this conversation, we've talked about how the energy transition is accelerating and clean energy industry is expanding so to make the equipment uh, that uh, businesses and consumers can install, like solar panels and so on. And the amount of investment that's going into, into clean energy is uh, now more than fossil fuels, on and on and on. So the question then becomes, it looks to me like China, Europe, United States are building out industry pretty much as fast as they can. Do we run, and this is an argument that's made by, by the oil and gas uh, advocates. They say, look, you can't, oil and gas uh, can't be phased down faster than renewable energy and clean energy technologies can scale up. Because otherwise what happens is you have a gap and then you have you have in, uh, rising prices and you have inflation and energy insecurity and and on and on and on. Uh, how do you respond to that argument? So I think that the so there are I, I completely understand that the fossil fuel is using this argument as they are also using the argument very much that without fossil fuel, there is no possibility of having energy security, which is a reason why you have uh, lots of countries that are investing in renewable energy that are in the same time also investing um, massively in uh, not only fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, LNG terminals, but in new um, fossil fuel operations. 
55% of those actually by industrialized Western economies. Um, and I think here there is a first answer that is very clear. The IEA has been very clear. We cannot afford new fossil fuel infrastructure. Full stop. If we take climate change uh, seriously, this is just a benchmark. Um, now, the energy transition is obviously a transition away from a fossil fuel-based system. Uh, still, 80% of the energy we are consuming comes from fossil fuel into an efficient and renewable energy-based system. So there are three pillars to it. One is phasing out fossil fuel. The other one is reducing energy demand by shifting, for instance, uh, to uh, lower energy consuming uh, transport sectors, whether it is walking, cycling, public transport, et cetera, um, and investing in energy efficiency. And the third pillar is moving and accelerating the shift to renewable energy. And um, here, I think, um, it is very clear that these three um, pillars need to be played in parallel. I think uh, there is, uh, you spoke about, uh, you, you mentioned in the introduction that Renton One was very much advocating for the supply side and accelerating renewable energy deployment. This is true on the one hand, but it's not the only thing we're we advocating for. Uh, Renton One really has a holistic approach here, a systems approach, which means like these three pillars are key. And it is very clear that we need to accelerate and increase renewable energy um, deployment. There is a global renewable energy and energy efficiency target uh, that has been uh, developed and put forward in the lead up to COP28 on tripling the renewable energy capacities and doubling energy efficiency. Um, this is fundamental if we follow all um, international scenarios, whether it is from the International Energy Agency, International Renewable Energy Agency, and IPCC. Um, but this said, we also need to accompany basically um, the energy consuming sectors to move away from fossil fuel and um, reduce their energy demand and increase basically the use of renewable energy. And this is something that is fundamental and is an additional lever to basically address and ensure energy security and uh, phase out fossil fuel. I think uh, the fossil fuel industry is using this argument uh, very much. Uh, so we, for the moment, we see a lot of polarization, um, fear-driven uh, propaganda. And um, I just think there are some really good country examples that show how moving basically to renewable energy is not only um, an answer to climate, that ensures energy security and a better economic uh, situation. I give the example of Uruguay. Uruguay has 100% renewable electricity uh, in their mix. They have a high share of renewable energy in their total final energy consumption. And they have actually been much less um, affected by the international uh, energy price crisis than countries that depend on the fluctuating fossil fuel prices. So um, I, I just think there are lots of arguments and examples that show that an interplay of all those levers, a coordinated effort on the demand and the supply side, do not only assure um, climate, but also resilient energy infrastructure and supply. Uh, I want to provide an example of how even the most sophisticated countries sometimes uh, get that wrong. And uh, a couple months ago, I, I was... Uh, a member of the journalism panel for a U.S. Energy uh, U.S. Energy Association technical briefing, and and they had 
executives from what in the U.S. are called regional transmission organizations, and so these would take a multiple multiple states and 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 any number of utilities could be dozens, could be hundreds of utilities, and and they manage the transmission and distribution of of to make sure everything is done in a you know the power grid is basically balanced and well managed. And this particular executive was saying that we want we want uh, more renewables. That's no question about that. We need storage. We need all of those things. But he said, we're having a real problem with supply chains. We, we just can't get the equipment that we need to install this. And we've got utilities that are shutting down thermal uh, plants, so either coal or, or natural gas, and it's throwing our grid out of, out of whack. And so now we've had, he said, just I guess this would have been in the summer when they had uh, high heat uh, in these states. He said, you know, we came very close to having a crisis, you know, and, and blackouts and, and all of that. So here is, you know, uh, a country where the management of the power grid is pretty sophisticated. And and even they are. It's a challenge. And and, and yeah. as we see in, in California and Texas, sometimes they don't meet the challenge and they have blackouts. So. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this story, Raina, except that it this is uh, sometimes um, this it, it, and it's it's technically complex and and maybe doesn't does that argue for a little more cautious approach uh, to just to make sure that we don't you know break things in the in the process. I think the the first reality is like uh, yes, we are speaking about very complex transitions and transformations. That's uh, that's very clear, and they are not only technically concept and complex. So I think we're we're not in a it's not an on off, but it's a phase out of fossil fuel and phase in of renewable energy. So obviously this needs to be done in a coordinated way. Um, there are realities. So that's on the energy system. It's also very clear that uh, in the past uh, historically there has been a lot of discussion about the energy supply side, in particular of electricity. We did not look into uh, renewable heat, for instance, and renewable fuels, even though uh, heat and fuel is actually um, are the um, are the carriers that will cover eighty percent of our energy demand. And I think this is where we see today a real shift uh, in terms of uh, policy attention also to um, renewable heat, basically in buildings and industry and in transport, with partly a deep electrification of, uh, in particular, transport and the building sector with the heat pumps, but also the development of alternative carriers. So I think this is um, the renewable-based hydrogen developments um, that also have a storage function. So I think it's a reality, but there are also um, there are solutions to it. Now, um, I think what is really important to um, when we're looking at the transition, we need to look at the transition from different angles. For climate reasons, we need to phase out fossil fuel. This is very clear. And interestingly, the IEA is actually um, in their latest World Energy Outlook. Uh, they are clearly saying that uh, renewable, sorry, that fossil fuel is going to peak in 2030, uh, before 2030. So. Still in this decade and not for climate reasons but just because there won't be the same demand and i think this is where we clearly see you address the supply chain which is a reality but we also see that the markets are going very quickly two years ago iea assessed that 50 percent of the global co2 emissions could actually be abated with existing technologies two 
years later, it's already 82% that can be uh, abated with um, existing technologies, which shows how quickly the technology innovation is also going. Now, on the deployment side, and I think this is really where there is a very strong message, we need governments to give the right indications, whether it is on the energy side, on the energy consumption side, but also in terms of industrial policies and economic pathways, that renewable energy and energy efficiency need to be at the heart of it, and we need to build up strong, reliable um, economic sectors. So uh, industry players like the Global Renewables Alliance, for instance, are very clearly advocating for the fact that we need to build up in economic sectors that are healthy economic sectors. Otherwise, indeed, there are risks on the supply chain. Um, now, on the on the fossil fuel side, and I think you, you mentioned that there is more investment going into um, into renewable energy than into fossil fuel. When we're looking basically into all the fossil fuel investment, this is unfortunately still not true. Um, there is only one third basically of the global investment in renewable in energy that is going into renewables. And I think this clearly shows that um, this is what we need to avoid. Um, obviously, if there are infrastructure existing, they balance basically the transition and support the transition. What we need to avoid today is to invest in new infrastructure. That's not possible. Gotcha. So uh, new I fossil think, fuel infrastructure. Yes. Sure. And now that I think about it, the I and I, I was looking. I just copied a graph from the the, the World Energy Outlook 2023 last night. Mm -hmm. And I, now that I think about it, I, maybe the I was talking about the investment in oil and gas as opposed mm -hmm. to all fossil fossil fuels. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> so if I was going to sum this up, uh, Ranam, and sum up our conversation, I would say that. A lot of what you're talking about is not just a simple, you know, phase down, uh, phase and or phase out uh, fossil fuels. It's more sophisticated than that, and there's lots of coordination, uh, policy coordination, access to capital. Uh, this is a big, big job, and and you're calling, I guess, for governments to be more involved, to be better at this, to to ass more assistance for emerging economies. And because the, the trends are already, uh, to me, fairly clear. Like if you look at the power, the power sector is leading the energy transition, the shift over to to renewables and hydro and, and what have you, clean, clean electricity. Road transportation is right behind. Not so much aviation and, and marine shipping, but certainly road transportation. And I thought buildings and industry would be, be lagging quite a bit. But now we see with the emphasis on heat pumps, very short period of time, now we see buildings beginning to catch up. And, and really now the, the lagging industry or lagging sector, it appears, is going to be industry and, and uh, you know, steel making and cement and, and, and so on. But the amount of the amount of uh, uh, progress in, in just a couple of years is just astonishing, uh, the acceleration of, of the energy transition. If we just let things go the way they are, is that good enough? No, that's not good enough. Very clearly not good enough because um, 
even though I completely agree with you on the very positive developments, and I, I think they are extremely important to highlight because they are also um, giving hope that we are that we are able to do the transition, and there there is a lot of potential for acceleration and innovation, etc. But I, I think when we're I, I, just to share a couple of numbers, you see, when we're looking into the building sector, it's thirty three percent of the energy consumption, only fifty. 15.5% is renewable energy. Industry, 33%, only 16.8% renewable energy. Transport, 30%, only 4.1% renewable energy. So this already shows that there is a high dependence on fossil fuel. And I think um, it is not enough because uh, we're unfortunately still in a situation where the fossil fuel subsidies are creating um, our a reality. They have even increased um, in response to um, the energy security crisis. 85% um, increase of fossil fuel subsidies uh, in 2022 over 21, uh, which is just uh, crazy, especially when you see that we are with the subsidies. Yes, it is basically done to address the energy price crisis, but it's beneficial for a few oil and gas uh, majors and uh, for a few oil and gas producing exporting economies. So I think this is where where we clearly need to create um, a level playing field for energy efficiency and renewable energy. And this is a policy ask. So governments have a key role to play here to send very clear signals and no mixed messages on we need to move out of fossil fuel into energy efficiency and renewables on the supply side, the infrastructure side and the demand side. So really the use. And what is also clear, we're speaking about a massive transformation. So it's not only a fuel switch. So we're speaking about transformations of the economy and society, and these need a broad support. And so from rent to non side, since we are a multi-stakeholder network, so bring together government, industry, NGOs, and science and academia, what is clear is if we want to build this broad support from market players on the NG and the NG consuming side and societal players, citizens on the local side, for this transition, um, they need to be involved very early on. So renewables has a wonderful opportunity here because the governance allows anybody to become an active part and have a benefit of basically investing in renewables. But this is also something that needs to be reflected in the policy and regulator frameworks. Well, Rana, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate the uh, you uh, coming on the uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to uh, future conversations. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation.